0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim, here today with Lance in the Crawl Space studios in Wormtown.
1: Lance, how are you today? I'm doing just fine, even though the weather is a bit soggy outside. I saw the worm as I passed in. Oh, did you wave? Well, he waved first and I waved back because I didn't want to be rude. Excellent. The worm is friendly this morning.
0: Yep. Lance, today we have a great interview that we're bringing our fine audience it's with uh, a man, a professional, a, a detective for uh, of over, over 36 years with the Seattle Police Department. His name is Cloyd Steiger, and he's a great guy to talk
1: to. He's sort of a uh, famous guy in the whole law enforcement world. Like you said, he was a Seattle homicide detective for 22 years, and uh, he was employed by the Seattle Police Department for 36 years. So he's got a long, long resume of cases of... Uh, And he's got a very high closure rate
0: as well. He does. And he's got a new book, too. It's called Homicide, The View from
1: Inside the Yellow Tape. And one thing that'll strike you when you listen to this is how much he sounds like an uncle. And we have affectionately nicknamed him Uncle Cloyd here at the Crawl Space Studios because of his just amiable nature. He's got a sense of humor. He's able to separate his what could be a really dark professional life with his private life and he comes across as as funny at times even though we're talking about some significantly shocking moments in in crime
0: well you can tell he's got a great sense of humor and you know we we try to keep the conversation somewhat light even though we do talk about some really dark topics including serial killers and other killers that he helped catch and we met him at ASOC, the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases, back in April in Albany, albeit just in passing, really, though.
1: Unfortunately, because when we talked to him, we went back and forth with, oh, if you bring this uh, folder that has all your cases in it, we'd love to sit down and go over it with you. He said that he'd bring the folder, but we didn't realize just how fast-moving ASOC was going to be, so hopefully we get a chance to actually sit down with him again and go through those cases. Maybe we can make another Crawl Space episode about that, because he was he was right there. He said hello. And we talked real briefly. But again, we we had we had a bunch of things that were going on. And the next thing we knew, we were back in the car on the way home.
0: It's true. But we did give him a shout out from our panel with uh, John Lord and Mike Morford, of course, the last episode of Corral Space. Uh, so that that's kind of cool, at least. But great guy, so hope you like the interview. And before we get to that, we just want to discuss a couple of announcements. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. We are doing new audio and video releases every week. We're calling them vaults. We talk about news. We have guests. We had our friend Nama in. We had our friend Ryan in. Occasionally, we have our intern slash assistant Brian, who adds a lot of comedy to the show.
1: And we also have different tiers in our Patreon. You can do the the basic tier where you can get some of that exclusive content. You can get some content where some of our ad reads that go sort of off the rails, we get some uh, some inside look into that. The, really funny, if you hear our ad reads on the on the uh, public feed, you, there's so much more to it that is uh, that is very comical. And also, we have a tier where you can be a VIP to any one of our live shows. We have a live show coming up on May 22nd at the Riverwalk Cafe in Nashua, New Hampshire, where we have Bruce Maitland, Greg Overacker, and Lou Barry. If you happen to be going to that show, you can get the VIP and you can chat with us for a little bit uh, before or after the show. Buy us a beer.
0: We sure do. And uh, and so check that out at Patreon.com slash Crawl Space Podcast. And Lance, you mentioned our next live show. Our next live show. May 22nd, Riverwalk Cafe, Nashua, New Hampshire. We're doing it with Bruce Maitland, Brianna's father, our friend Chloe Cantor, and private investigators Lou Barry and Greg Overacker. So the whole crew.
1: The whole Brianna Maitland crew and the whole private investigations for the missing crew... And the show is just about sold out. It's an intimate engagement. It's very sort of like a uh, an exclusive type venue. They have a full menu and a full bar. So go to our website, crawlspace-media.com, or you can go to Brown Paper Tickets to purchase your tickets. We're calling it Missing Brianna Maitland. And again, we're getting real close to selling out, and it'll be worth it because it's a very rare opportunity to be able to ask questions with Bruce, Greg, and Lou about Brianna and about private investigations for The Missing.
0: And ticket sales go straight to
1: PIs for the missing, Lance. Right, that's information we did not put out there right away, but know that when you purchase your ticket for this live show, it goes to this nonprofit that Bruce Maitland started to provide resources for family members who have missing loved ones and they no longer have the resources of law enforcement.
0: Okay, so we will see you there May 22nd. Also, check us out. We're going to CrimeCon. Use code Crawlspace19 when you sign up at CrimeCon's website. And that is 10% off your standard ticket pass. And our entire Crawlspace archive is available on Stitcher Premium. So check that out at StitcherPremium.com. And thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoy this interview. Uncle Cloyd. Welcome to Crawl Space, cloyd steiger how are you today
2: i'm good thanks
1: thanks for coming on with us i know it was sort of a impulsive request on our end your name has always been floated out there because of the work that you've done and the book you've written and just your time in law enforcement
2: you know i actually get requests like this all the time and i always try to say yes
1: well thanks
0: for making us feel special
2: <laughs> <laughs> actually just average <laughs> <laughs> well we'll take what we can get <laughs> okay so what about the uh,
0: ASOC conference? You're going to that, too, right?
2: I am, yeah. Are you guys going to be there?
0: We are. They were going
1: to rename it the Crawl Space Conference. Yeah. There
2: you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the American Investigative Society of Crawl Space. So what's your connection to ASOC? How did you get involved with that?
2: Well, you know, I, I'm a consulting committee member. Like back in 2014, I was actually still working as a homicide detective when I got an email from this guy named Ken Maines. He says, I'm starting this new group. I'd like to get involved. In. And I went, who the hell is Ken Mains?" right? <laughs> I was right in the middle of actually a pretty intense murder investigation. I said, I'm kind of busy right now. Let me get back to you. And a couple of days later, I did get back to him. He explained what it was all about. Asked me if I was on board. And I said, sure. So I, I've, I've been involved ever since. I've gone to every conference. Very cool. I actively work on all the cases they send. And it's just, you know, met some great people, great friends along the way. And And it's just been a good experience for me overall, and I hope I can help with my contributions.
0: Wow. Okay. That's wonderful.
2: You seem like a very friendly and jovial type person, yet
1: you've worked on so many murder investigations and you've written a book. How do you keep it balanced? How how do you not get sucked into this dark place that murder investigations might take somebody?
2: Well, in reality is, well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I've always tried to keep my sense of humor. I was always kind of a jokester my whole life and I didn't change because of that. The other thing is I have balance in my life. I didn't let that job consume me, although it took up most of my life and it identifies who I am as a person. But I also kept friends who are not cops, neighbors, I, you know, coached Little League, did all the normal suburban stuff as much as I could with this kind of job. And that kind of kept me balanced. I've been married to the same woman for almost 37 years. I have uh, almost 38 years. I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't let her hear that. <laughs> we'll we'll yeah. edit that. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) I have three sons. Two of them are cops and I have six grandkids
1: and, and, you know, they balance out my life. Do you support your sons becoming
2: uh, police officers? I I didn't encourage and I didn't discourage. Gotcha. My oldest son, he went to school and majored in criminal justice and then he got, went to work for a high school coaching and, and things like that and working. And I thought maybe he'd just go that way. And all of a sudden he says, yeah, I think I'm going to take the test. And he got hired. And then my middle son, who actually went to school to be a firefighter and then And I wasted all my money on that. Then he goes, well, maybe I'll test for the police department. And he did like six months later and he got hired. So my youngest son's more of a outdoorsy Hunter Fisher guy. He works for a place called Filson Outfitters, which has been around since 1897 with outdoor equipment and stuff. He went to school and majored in law enforcement. And I I wasted my money on that also because he said, you know, I'm not sure I want to do that. So I said, well, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. You know, (laughs) that's the thing. So you've worked
0: as a homicide detective with the Seattle Police Department for a lot of years.
2: Right. I was a homicide detective for 22 of my 36-year career in Seattle.
0: Wow. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? And, and I guess, what's the difference um, between a detective and, and uh, being a police officer?
2: Well, there's a big difference. You know, a police officer, when I say police officer, I generally mean uniform patrol officer, drives around either by himself or with a partner in a marked patrol car responds to 911 calls. And a detective is not in uniform, drives unmarked cars and investigates crimes that are generated through those patrol officers, those 911 calls or reports of crime. And they start out like when I first became a detective, it was uh, just at the very beginning of 1990. I was a precinct detective up in the East Precinct of Seattle up on Capitol Hill. And I was kind of a generalist doing a lot of burglary, theft, things like that, cases. And then uh, a couple years later, had an opportunity to become a, work at Sex Crimes, which is a downtown unit and headquarters and citywide. And I jumped at that because my ultimate goal was to go into homicide. And so it, that was the obvious next step for me. And I did that for a couple of years, investigating rapes and child molests cases and things like that. And then uh, in 1994, I became a homicide detective. Why homicide? Why was that your ultimate goal? I was 10 years old when I decided I wanted to be a police officer. I mean, I, it was like Watching TV shows, thought, that'd be a cool job, you know, I'm not stuck in an office and that kind of stuff. And so and I told my parents, yeah, you know, I think I want to be a police officer. And they, Yeah, sure, dear, go go play. <laughs> but then I didn't, you know, I went to libraries and I, and I got all the uh, nonfiction books about, you know, how to become a police officer and your career in law enforcement and some of those titles. both at my school library and then uh, at the public library, I read them all. And then as I got to be a teenager, I started reading more true crime books and things like that. You know, I thought, well, that would actually be a pretty cool thing to do, too. So, you know, when I got on, that was my ultimate goal. Of course, you know, the thing is, there are a lot of people in the Seattle Police Department and and very few homicide jobs comparatively. Probably about two percent of the jobs on the police department are homicide detectives. So, you know, I knew the odds were against me, but I thought I just need to do what I need to do to get there. And that's what I did. And so that's where I wanted to go. And so I just followed those steps.
0: So do you use a different side of your brain, so to speak, when uh, when you're a detective versus being a policeman?
2: Yeah, I think so because, you know, when you're a patrol officer – First of all, you're very reactive to 911 calls and emergencies that happen quickly. And, you know, of course, smaller departments are different. Smaller departments, the patrol officers do a lot of the investigating themselves. But in bigger departments, you get the information, I'm talking about in routine, quote-unquote, crimes. And you write a report and you move on to the next one, right? And then so the detective, if he gets assigned that case, has to think about things he can do, he or she can do to solve the case or make an arrest center to clear it. And, you know, it's not always easy. But so it's a different – it's more – Kind of more cerebral, not that being a patrol officer cannot be a cerebral job, it certainly can, but uh, and it's more analyzing and to be successful thinking outside the box and thinking what can I do to make this case get cleared, and that's what you have to do it's a It is a different type of thought and a different it's a completely different job.
0: yeah, it seems to me you'd have to use a bit of your imagination to be a detective, whereas as a police officer that that's probably not something you want to use that much.
2: Right. I mean, yeah, it's true that you do have to use your imagination. Good detectives do. Good detectives don't look at a checklist and say, now I do this, now I do that. They they have to be imaginative and think about what could I do that maybe I've never done before that'll help this case. What's unique about this case that I think that'll work for.
1: Was there a bit of a reality check from when you were reading those crime books and imagining what the scenario would be to when you saw your
2: first murder? Well, I saw my first murder when I was patrol officer. (laughs) I saw lots of murders as a patrol officer. I was on a lot of homicide scenes. I worked in Southeast Seattle during the late 70s, early 80s, and that was as close as Seattle has to the ghetto. It's been gentrified now, but I, I went to a lot of murders. There's a big difference between fictional books and nonfiction, true crime books, if they're written well and accurately describe the events. And they are kind of realistic, although they are, they're only one dimensional. They don't talk about the people you deal with, or the you know the smell, or the you know the sights. It's all one-dimensional on a piece of paper. And it's certainly different to actually be there and actually do the case and also the responsibility you have to finish the case.
1: My follow up question is right on those lines. When you were at the scene of your first murder investigation, what was going through your mind? Did you have like butterflies in your stomach? Were you unsure of whether or not your process was going to work? I'm I'm so fascinated with someone who has gone through a career like you getting the opportunity. It's like, going through the minor leagues in your first at-bat. Like, what what is in your head when you go to your first murder investigation?
2: It is like, you know, going getting called up from AAA. You know, that when I was in sex crimes, that was AAA. Although I handled, like, three serial rapists during my time in, in sex crimes, so that gave me a lot of good experience. But, it, but first of all, the first murder I ever investigated where I was a primary detective along with my partner was the murder of a little seven-year-old girl. It was intense, but it, but it's like, you know, I'd been a cop for... 15, 16 years at that time. Is that right? Yeah. And so your, your brain just, it's like a power takeoff lever. You know, your brain goes into work mode. And although I'd, I'd never done one of these cases before, I'd done violent crime investigations. And so it wasn't it wasn't like if you went from being a precinct detective generalist to mostly, you know, low level crimes to the homi- homicide. There was that step in between. So it was a natural step for me. I'd prepared myself a long time to do it. So, I mean, it was, it was interesting. It was exciting. And this case, you know, it was like, my, you know, working the case 24 hours a day almost for three or four days before we made the arrest. But we cleared it. So that, that was a good feeling. You cleared it after three or four days? Right.
0: Great. So you're also working with the Washington State Attorney General's Homicide uh, Investigation Tracking System. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: I'm actually the chief investigator of that, which means I, I supervise detective, oh, excuse me, investigators and analysts in the state of Washington. And what it does, first of all, we have a database that tracks all murders in Washington, Oregon, and Montana. And we keep track of them looking for commonalities across jurisdictional lines that might pop up. Or also we can research cases if somebody has a question about a case. But we also review cases and kind of shred them, basically. Somebody will submit a case, a cold case, usually a smaller department because they don't have the resources. Say, we got this case. Would you guys look at it? So we get the entire case in a uh, digital form. All of us individually go through it. And then we sit and talk about it. And then we give a final report to the to the agency and say, this is what you probably need to do for this case. It's a lot like what I do at ISOT, but on a more localized level. So it's like a oversight sort of committee. It is. Although, you know, they're actually they're in the process and exploring the possibility of expanding it into and actually physically investigate cold cases with or at the request of other agencies. And that's something that's we've had meetings about. It will probably happen in the next year or two. That sounds like revolutionary. It really is, yeah. Well, see, Washington has no State Bureau of Investigation. The State Patrol here is a traffic organization, so they don't investigate violent crimes other than, you know, obviously a vehicular homicide and assault. So it's like California is that way. So there's no statewide investigative agency that is equipped to handle violent crimes like murder. So that's what, you know, we want to kind of morph into. Try to connect those dots. Sorry to sound naive. Does that mean that
1: Washington State doesn't have an FBI? headquarters
2: fbi is different fbi oh, is a federal, okay. they federal crimes much to the disbelief of most people they do very the fbi investigates very few murders themselves right. other, unless they happen on an indian reservation or on a military base or, or some other federal property georgia has a georgia, georgia bureau of investigation and, right. and and they are and other states do too. wyoming i know does you get a small sheriff's office that has four people in the whole office and they cover 1,000 square miles. You're not going to find any expertise in murder investigations. Of course, they get you know, one every four or five years. But when they get that one, they're behind the eight ball and they need help. And that's what we try to, we'd like to do with them or other agencies is going there and help them with these cases. My naive question turned into uh, an answer
1: for some people. That We get a lot. Uh, We get this question. Why hasn't the FBI looked into this murder or this murder or this murder? A lot of people will see the FBI looking into, like you said, they'll do something that's um, like a Native American murder. So there's a misconception that the FBI is always on murders.
2: Matter of fact, I'll bet you it is less than one half of one percent of their entire caseload.
0: Yeah. Okay. cool. So, what about serial killers? I know uh, you, your time in in Seattle, and uh, I think that kind of area of the country is sort of known for serial killers. Have you worked right.
2: on uh, those cases? I worked on a couple of serial cases then. Have helped with cases that are probably s- serial cases in my current job. I don't know if it's real or not, but there there is a it seems to be an overrepresentation of serial murder in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, a friend of mine who was a reporter at the Seattle PI, Levi Polkynan, he he did a thing several years ago, serial murders from Washington state. And he has, he has a list and, and they're all on there and there's all these pictures. It's like 70 people. It's like, wow. <laughs> of course people realize not all serial killers are Ted Bundy. Yeah. And the green river killer. There, there are people that killed two or three here or there, you know, or four or five or things like that. It only takes two separate murders with a cooling off period in between, usually psychosexually motivated, not always to, to classify officially as a serial killing. So you know, there's a lot of those.
0: In your work with the Washington State Attorney General's Homicide Investigation Tracking System, do you see cases and see similarities? And, and have you ever connected cases that were obviously unsolved um, and, and said this has a similar profile, this could be the same person?
2: Not me personally, because a lot of this happened before. I've only been there for three years now. There was a serial killer over in Spokane. He was killing prostitutes. He did like 13 of them he was convicted of like 13 and he had done some and most of them in Spokane, but there were two or three in Pierce County by Tacoma on the opposite side of the state that matched the profile. And so people from my office called over to call Tacoma and said, you need to call the detectives in Spokane because they could be related. It ends up they were related. It was the same zero killer working across the state.
0: Is that Robert Yates?
2: Yeah, Robert Yates. So what years was Robert Yates active? I was working at in homicide at Seattle, and I knew a lot of detectives over there. So it was in the mid to late nineties, I think. Yeah. Maybe the early two thousands. I don't remember. What were those connections that you saw and discussed? He would get these prostitutes and rape them and he'd put a bag over a plastic bag over their head and shoot them in the head with a twenty two pistol. And so we had these cases in Spokane, like eight or nine, ten of them, and then like two or three showed up in Tacoma or Pierce County, and they said, Yeah, those look the same. And they were the same. It was him.
0: So that's a pretty obvious uh, similarity, huh? Are they yeah, all a really obvious? Similarity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're probably yeah, not really, all. But that But the guys
2: in Tacoma don't know about the thing in Spokane, right? right? right. They're not hearing about that stuff, so that's the thing. That's the whole point. Right. Of, there have been other cases like that, and we actually have a presentation that one of my people gives whenever people ask about hits, and it talks about several cases like that where we've linked cases and what and what information we can get to investigators. There's a lot of things we can do for them, like for example, we have all the vehicle records from the Department of Licensing in the state going way back to the early '80s, and see if the Department of Licensing purges their information every now and then. But we keep ours forever, so if somebody's looking for a for a car from like 1986. They're not going to find it in the Department of Licensing, but we'll have it. Was it easier to get away with being a serial murderer, say, in the 70s,
1: 80s, or 90s, or today? What's the difference between getting away with it then and getting away with it
2: now? hits was actually formed exactly for that reason Bob Keppel is the one who actually started the hits unit and he you know he worked on Green River and then assisted I mean excuse me Ted Bundy and assisted with Green River and that was the problem getting information across cross jurisdictional lines that was the motivation to do this it started with a federal grant you know the forensic abilities today are so much greater I mean in the last year and a half they've probably increased Seven hundred percent from the previous twenty years, you know, and that's the way it is. I think that's the biggest thing that makes it harder to get away with serial murder right now is forensics. Things like hits uh, are—they were much more important back before this forensic stuff happened, but it, it's st- it still is important. But that was the big thing.
1: Has there been any communication about
2: technology
1: actually assisting someone who wants to get away with being a serial murderer? It's easier to say that than
2: do it, though. You'd have to wear a body condom, which kind of restricts your arms against your chest so you can't. Tough to kill someone. If you breathe on somebody, you leave DNA. If you touch them, you leave DNA. And there are DNA collection systems today, like the MVAC, wet vacuuming DNA collection system. Which gets DNA off stuff we could never get it off before. Yeah, you can know it, and they try to clean up. Usually, is is a lot harder than it sounds. The best way to get away with it is to not to do it in the first place. Yeah. What's the wet vac? M vac. M like M vac. V A C. If you, when you go to Isoc next week, uh, I think Jared Bradley, the president and CEO, he's usually there. He'll be there, and it's a, it's like a carpet cleaner. And what it does is it has a, it has a wand that shoots sterile liquid into the evidence, and then sucks it right back up into a, a vial, and then you pour that through this really sensitive filter, and then the filter is tested for DNA, and they find, I mean, there's, there's case after case. If you go on their website m vacvac.com, they have case studies that talk about. Let me let me throw one out out there for you. This little girl. I think it was in the mid 2000s. Was found murdered next to a river down in Utah, and there was a bloody rock next to her. She'd obviously had her head bashed with this rock, right? Well, they had that case, and they tested the rock, and they didn't find anything off of it or anything at all. When mvac came along. They decided to mvac the rock, so they did that and found a in DNA profile that they were able to match to a suspect and make an arrest in that case. You know, 10, 12, 13 years after the fact, that was not available from swabbing because it just didn't, swabbing doesn't get as deep into it mvac also has a, a head for doing on human skin and like rape victims even if that's they sh- they've showered afterwards they can mvac their body sometimes extract usable dna wow there have been a lot of cases like that it's 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 been out about two or three years by the way i have no financial interest in it so <laughs> but it's it's just a revolution in collection then you then you pair that with familial dna a forensic genealogy it's killer i mean they're, they're, these cases are dropping like flies every couple days you when you're you're looking hearing about a Cold case murder arrest was made using one, two, or all three of those technologies. And it's just a a great time to be a homicide detective. Let me present
1: a hypothetical scenario. Let's say that there's someone who's been murdered and there's a suspicion that they were abducted and you have a, a very good person of interest in mind and you want to use this MVAC in their vehicle to find out if this person who was murdered was in the vehicle. How would one, as a law enforcement official, go and obtain a, a search warrant or the rights to look in this vehicle?
2: Yeah. You know, if, if he's a person of interest, there's a reason he's a person of interest. And that's when you add it up, hopefully it's enough to get probable cause and you have to know the facts of every individual case but one good thing about dna it not only convicts the guilty it absolutely exonerates the innocent so that's another you know another thing about it so you you'd have to establish a probable cause or do whatever or sometimes the person sells the car or gets rid of it right you just go to the new person and buy the car from them or say can we borrow can we test your car and, and you use a mvac on in the trunk lining on the seats on the floorboard anywhere in the car you can almost certainly you're going to find dna from the victim on there if they really use that car Tim and I had a really interesting
1: conversation about how to obtain DNA from somebody who is a person of interest and whether or not it was legal to do it one way or another. Is it legal to monitor one of one of your persons of interest and say they go into a coffee shop and they get a coffee? Could you then go into that coffee shop and ask the employee, can I see the cup that that guy just drank out of
2: so we can, you know, and then you get the DNA from that? Is that legal? Oh, yeah. A matter of fact, I've done that several times and that's done all the time. And uh, although usually it's something like, uh, for example, there was a, a woman, she was found murdered years and years ago. And how forensic genealogy works is you test your unknown, you have a known sample from the crime scene, but it's an unknown suspect. And you enter it in CODIS, it's not there. CODIS is the combined DNA index. There's a state and federal CODIS. Then you submit it to a, a service like Parabon Labs or Bodie Labs or DNA solutions, the DNA they're developing is a different format. The SDR, straight tandem repeat, is, is the way they develop it forensically. But for uh, for genealogy, they have to use a, a process called SNAP, S-N-P. So they have to develop it differently. And then they submit that against the databases of these uh, you know 23andMe, Ancestry.com databases. And they find markers that say, this person is probably a relative. And those, those markers are scored how close they have to be and they have to be within a certain number before they'll look at those they have to be a certain high enough number but when then they do a genealogist actually sits down and traces that known person's family tree until it gets down to two or three suspects first of all you usually most cases it's going to be a male so it's got a y chromosome it's a male so you're looking for males related to this person and you get down maybe you'll get to three brothers right it's going to be one of these three brothers so then what you do is you decide you look and see why is this what is there any reason either any of these three could not be the guy he was in jail he was dead uh anything like that and if you don't find that then you gotta look and see if they're in any of the three brothers are in codis and if they are in codis you can eliminate because you've already checked codis it's not that brother right then you start tracing down the other two and you either you you can either get a warrant if you have probable cause get a warrant for the dna sample you can ask them to voluntarily submit a dna sample which they do a lot of times or you can start following around well there's this guy that killed this woman it was in minnesota it was like Three weeks or a month ago, they got this guy. They, they narrowed it down to this one guy. He was a hockey dad. So the detectives actually followed him to a hockey game. He went to the snack bar. He used something, wiped his na- mouth with his napkin, threw it in the garbage. They went behind, picked up the napkin, took it in. That's your guy. That was a verification. That's what they used to arrest this guy. So those type of things happen all the time. There was a yeah. case in Washington. Snohomish County, a cold case that was solved several months ago, two Canadian teenagers back in the 80s, I think, came down to pick up some parts in Washington for the dad, one of the dad's businesses, and they were both found, they were found separately and murdered, and the the woman, the girl was raped. So the detectives in Snohomish County did the same thing, got it down to a couple people. One of them was a truck driver in Seattle, so they went to his job and watched him leave, and he was driving down an industrial street in Seattle, and they were behind him, and, and he stopped for some reason opened his door on a coffee cup, paper coffee cup, fell the, on, hit on the ground. Then he drove away. They picked up the coffee cup, and that was the match. That was his DNA. <laughs> wow. There you go. Another reason to not litter. Yeah, don't litter. <laughs> <laughs> don't kill people and don't litter. Yeah, lesson learned. Yeah, those learned. are the two takeaways for today.
0: So this Jerry Westrum, he's the guy uh, who was charged in this Minnesota... That's um, right.
2: Jerry Westrom is correct
0: killing yeah. yeah from uh wow from 1993 just like curious about the profile of someone like that so he he committed this murder back in 1993 and this is I, I take it the only murder he's being charged with is he a likely offender like someone to to reoffend at some point between 1993 and 2018.
2: One would think he's I know he had a he had a soliciting a prostitution arrest, which is a kind of a a flag on his record. I have this discussion with uh, people in ISOC that I'm with. We're finding a lot of single cases out there where people committing what you would think would be a serial murder type case. How can that be? Yeah. Well, maybe it was one and done. My other suggestion is maybe there's some cases somewhere that are in some small police agency that are sitting on a shelf that had this murder. I have no idea. I haven't done anything about it since it happened. It's never been tested. They need to pull those cases down or ask for help, yeah, and process the evidence again. You know, people say, "Oh, we checked for DNA back in '98. We didn't get nothing." Well, you didn't check for DNA in '98. You didn't check for DNA in 2015. So, you know, you got to do it again because it's, the, the methods are so much advanced from then. So that's the thing. You gotta, you gotta just go out and do this again. And and that's a possibility. There are other cases that nobody's ever tied to this guy because they have never. Reopen the case. It was handled back then. It went cold and it got put on a shelf and it's still sitting there. There are, there are hundreds of thousands of cases like that around the country.
0: So this uh, murder victim, uh, Gene Childs, was apparently a sex worker and you said he was caught uh, soliciting prostitution. That could be a second potential victim that he was uh, or maybe going to attempt. I, I guess my question is, does it surprise you the amount of missing people versus the amount of Jane Doe's that are found? How are not more connected?
2: Let me tell you what. I, I, I just actually contacted Namus and uh, I asked the contact to have it Namus how many Jane does in the US are there that are have never been identified unidentified remained and the number was 12500 who were found dead and never identified and nobody knows who they are or what happened to them it came up because there's a couple of cases in Seattle where we had these situations. And one was like my last couple of months on the police department. I went to a case, ended up being a woman who jumped off a bridge, but she was well-dressed, had jewelry on. She looked like a woman in her mid-60s, not homeless looking at all, or she's not in uh, APHIS, the fingerprint system. She's not in CODIS. And so we're just waiting for somebody to you know, say that she's missing, but nobody's ever called. And that's been more than three years ago. We put things out on the news. Who is this woman? And why isn't anybody missing her? You know, Yeah. You know, with a drawing of her and stuff at the time, it's actually the medical examiner's office in King County that's handland, but I helped him out. How is nobody missing this woman? She's she's obviously not a homeless person that's been, you know, out on the out in the street for months and months or years. And, and he goes, Maybe that's why she killed herself. She has nobody. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's a sad case. But you know, that's the thing. 12,500 as of mid-March in the U.S. That's only the ones that are reported to NamUs. Mm-hmm. There could be another 12,500 that have never been entered into NamUs.
0: I don't know what the number is of missing people, current missing people in the country. Oh, my in the country, it's, But Right, it's so in how, do, the, how do you make the cross-reference the there? Of yeah. I mean, there's got to be so many that can be connected, right? I mean, every single doe should be able to be connected to a missing person.
2: You know, about a year ago in HITS, we had... A thing about what, where we're looking into long-term missing children and and because there were some people that were arrested here for uh child porn and they had some really unnerving things in their home and the sheriff at the time i was talking to him and he goes "Well, so, you know these guys aren't serial killers because we know about the missing children i said i t- talked to one of my investigators run a run on missing children in washington these people were elderly so they've been around a long time since the mid-70s as far as we went back there were like 132 unsolved missing children cases just in the state of Washington, right, (laughs) that have never been found. 132. So what does that tell you? That's just in Washington, and that's just the ones we know about. Yeah. People just assume, "Oh, well, I don't know about that," so it must not be true. Well, it is true. You just don't know about it. Make it you have to make a point to educate yourself. You have to ask somebody like me. Right. Hey, could you find out for me? And I'll, I'll find out for you. That's one of the things we do. Yeah. Well, that brings
1: up my next question about the relationship between the public and law enforcement, especially people who like to consider themselves a sort of citizen detective and they look into unsolved cases and cold cases and missing persons. And what we do here where we try to keep the conversation going about any any cold case. If anybody comes to us and says, look into this person, uh, they've been missing for 10 years. Is there something that you could do? What What is it that's the responsible thing to do on our end? And if someone does want to take like their citizen detecting to the next level and, and do investigations, do you have any advice for people like that?
2: Well, first of all, if It hasn't been solved in 10 years or whatever. You're not going to hurt anything, right? You don't want to start going out and uh, interviewing witnesses and stuff if you can avoid it. You know, you got to let the. If you find somebody you think might know about it, you need to let the investigating agency do that. I used to get a lot of calls from, and not on cold cases, on fresh cases from amateur detectives. And, you know, 97% of the tips I got had nothing to do with my case. But that 3% of the ones you're looking for, right? So, (laughs) and just because you don't know, it's better to call and not be sure than to not call at all or... I have no problem with people bringing this stuff up. I, I get a lot of follows from uh, seeking Johnny's killer or whatever sure. these pages that people that are unsolved. And you know, the thing is there's nothing worse than looking in the dead eyes of a mother that's lost a child, whether that child was three or 33, you know, and and having no answers. The worst thing can happen is to lose a child. And what makes it, what makes it even worse is not knowing what happened. Ugh. I don't have, I have a lot of sympathy. I have no animosity toward anybody that's trying to solve case if whether they're intimately involved or not it doesn't hurt yeah it'll be fun
1: to discuss this at uh at ASOC with you because that's a question yeah. that we sort of wrestle with a lot which is like where where's the line for what we do and what information we get because sometimes people aren't comfortable bringing information to law enforcement for whatever reason. And and you said there's like 97% isn't really associated with your case. It's a 3% that you're looking for. I think a lot of people know that and they don't want to maybe take up too much resources with law enforcement by giving them something that they're not sure
2: about. You don't know whether you're the 3% or the 97%. Yeah, right. I had a major, a big case uh, in 2009 where literally there were 700 or 800 tips phoned in on the case because it was a big media case. People were going through them for me, but I'd go through it myself every morning and just let the new ones come in and just remember something out of it. And like I said, most of them were had nothing to do with it. But at the end, I remember we got a tip on something like this. And I'd go back and there it is. And they were right, but they didn't know they were right, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't have a name. or It wasn't a clear thing. They didn't know. But they were they really saw something. But, you know, you never know. It does make it hard for law enforcement when they're overwhelmed with tips. But I mean, it's better to call it in when it's not involved than to not call it in when it is. You know, that's sure. the
1: thing. Yeah, that's great. That's that's our next uh, T-shirt. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. There you go. There you go.
0: <laughs> is there anything that you can take from other serial killer investigations that you've used or that you've worked on uh, that you can use in, in other ones?
2: Yes. Although, you know, the supposition that serial killers are all exactly alike is completely wrong. Yeah. One can have one set of motivations and and act and do things for a completely different set of reasons than another. The biggest thing you need to do is connect the cases, at least potentially. Yeah, this could be the same guy. First serial killing I ever worked on was in 1997, I think. And the, and the guy and it was when I was at these scenes and. It was, you know, I was looking. I go, man, this is a lot like that one from a couple of months ago. Where this is a lot like, and and geographically, there were three scenes in particular that were all within one square mile. And I remember saying, I think this is a serial killer. And the old time sergeant I had, oh BS, it's not a serial killer. You know, he was old school, but it was. <laughs> it ended up being the right guy, and we got him. You know, and he confessed to them all. So wow. I mean, that's the thing.
0: Is that common? The confession.
2: It is once they're over the hump. Yeah, you know, over the yeah. that first one because these guys like to talk about it generally speaking' I mean, again they're not all the same but this guy when in particular once we got him over just time to the first case he just burst like a damn because he just and he loved talking about it when you talk to him normally he was a ple- actually a pleasant guy he spoke friendly enough but when he started talking about his kills he got a guttural tone to his voice his nostrils flared and he, he could like he was like reliving it and I actually just uh, two weeks ago went to prison to see him with a, a criminologist friend of mine, who also has a podcast called Murder Was the Case, me to plug somebody else's no, podcast. don't no worry. Walk away, yeah. And I took it because we'd been talking. I, we'd been talking over the years. He's from Toronto. Lee Miller is his name, and he's and he's been talking for years. And we'd met at Asoc seven, eight years ago, and we started talking about this guy. And he goes, "Man, if I ever get to Seattle, you got to make me." Be. Well, he's he came to Seattle a couple weeks ago he's down in LA but he's coming back again tomorrow. He's staying at my house cuz he's he's a poor PhD, has no money. But we <laughs> but we he said, "Can we go talk to Dwayne? That's the guy's name." And I said, "Sure." And I just called the prison. We're coming down. Okay, and we went to the prison. That was his first face-to-face interview with a serial killer and he was thrilled. It was like a kid in a candy store. But yeah. What what's the uh the killer's name? Dwayne Lee Harris. One of the things he said there is Man, I thought this would be glamorous, but it ain't glamorous. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> Sitting in prison for the rest of your life, yeah, it ain't, it ain't glamorous. Uh, so Dwayne Lee Harris said that? Yes. He thought that he
1: was going to get a book deal or a movie deal? Or yeah, produce... something. Yeah. something. Yeah. Wow, yeah, wow. Something. So that,
0: yeah. <laughs> that feeling of of sort of bragging about it didn't translate to what he expected, I guess.
2: It didn't. No, and, yeah. he, and he says it right out. Although when you talked to him, he tried to act like he was remorseful, but it only took a few minutes to see he's still a psychopath. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know how many other serial killers you've uh, interviewed, but um, but do you do you often see that that kind of you you may call it a guttural reaction? His nose, his nose nostrils flared, um, and there was a little bit of a change in his voice. Is that something common?
2: It depends on the individual. Another, for example, I have another serial killer I, I investigated in two thousand eleven, and he was completely different because he he was a jihadi. You know, he was like a radicalized Muslim American. He was just going on the street and killing people at random as part of his jihad. There was no psychosexual thing about it, although he brutally killed two gay guys that he picked up in a gay bar. And, you know, there was something going on about that. Other than that, he was just and he killed in three in Seattle and then one in New Jersey. He was a psychopath in a sense, but he wasn't psychosexual motive. It was, just, that's my jihad. I'm just killing people. I mean, wow. they deserve it. You know, that's the thing.
0: As far as the psychosexual aspect of serial killers, it seems to me that they there isn't too much difference between man and a female victim. I know most of them happen to be female, but a lot of them you find uh, have killed men too and had those oh, same absolutely. sexual yeah. experiences. So, and right. but they don't identify as gay or anything like that. It's just
2: not necessarily that's... no. Well, there's Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, yeah. and then there's then there's a guy in Toronto that I forget Saint lawrence or something like that Saint george he just he was killing picking up gay men and torturing them, killing them he just went to trial a few months ago but there are you know john, john wayne gacy yeah he would kill boys he wasn't he didn't uh, identify as gay uh wayne williams in atlanta the atlanta child murder mm-hmm. you know he was killing boys he didn't necessarily i don't know if he did identify as gay actually I, john Liebert who is maybe at ASOC is as a forensic psychiatrist that worked on that case as a consultant.
0: Yeah, so it like a lot of times it's um it's just opportunity based it sounds like with with that, right?
2: It it is. And then of course there are the people that are polysexual. It doesn't matter to them if it's a man or a woman. Yeah. Right. They'll do both right. Yeah, so there are a lot of those people out there, especially in the in the in the serial killing world there will there are ones that have killed men and women for sexual reasons or both you know
0: yeah so that that seems like the most common to me but that would also mean that it's the most uh hard to track because the profile of the victim changes so drastically
2: it does yeah although you know there are other ways to track them but yeah yeah is there a case that you covered that
1: is still unsolved do you have that like the one that got away case I have none.
2: I solved every case I ever worked on. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was just stunned We were about right to get there. you yeah, standing you know, out. <laughs> I was really lucky. I solved a lot of cases. You know, a couple of years, my partner and I had 100% clearances year after year. But there are a few. Wow. And the ones that you don't solve are usually because everybody's lying to you about it. Every, the witnesses are lying. The people are lying. Everybody's lying. Nobody's, you know, I had a, I had a case where an innocent victim was killed. Uh, who just moved up to Seattle after Hurricane Katrina and was in front of his house with a friend, having a beard, flown up to visit him, and these cars getting a beef in front of his house, and he walks out there and says, hey, why don't you guys pull into my driveway so you're not in the street? And the guy shot and killed him, right? Boom, for no reason. Well, I know who the guy is. And the guy is not the guy that shot and killed him. I know who he is. He's not a gangbanger. He was actually an installer for DirecTV, although he was kind of living this pseudo gangbanger life, you know, on Friday night and Saturday night. He wanted to be that, but he worked as a regular guy, job and had a kid, kids and a family. Wow. But, yeah, and, and I know he did it. We have uh, no doubt in the world. You know, he, We arrested him a couple times. The last time he told his wife, I'm going to be gone for a really long time. But none of the witnesses, even the neutral witnesses, were all lying about it. <laughs> so – that, that's a frustrating case. Did you ever come across any murder that seemed, well,
1: I'll be more specific, uh, on Crawl Space and on our other podcast, Missing Maura Murray. We cover Maura Murray's disappearance and we cover Brianna Maitland's disappearance. And these are two young women who disappeared and their cars were left on the side of the road in suspicious circumstance. So we we always talk about this opportunistic killer. How realistic right. is an opportunistic killer? Maura's case is a little different because she wasn't from the area, but she was familiar with the area and she was passing through. And Brianna was, you know, she lived and worked in that area. So I'm sure that the potential killer for Brianna would be someone that she probably knew. But in Mora's case, it seems like it's probably someone she didn't know. So do you see that a lot? And, And how do you identify
2: that? When you're talking about, you know, opportunist killers like that, it's more of the psychopathic stalker killer. It's not just a guy driving on the way to work and says, Hey, there's a girl, maybe I'll kill her. You know, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't really happen that much unless he's already a sexually psychopathic killer or something. So those are more potential serial cases, not necessarily because you can't have a series of one, but those do happen. They happen a lot. And so those are the ones that, you know, in that case, I would take that car back. They probably haven't got the car anymore. You know, they should have kept the car or, or taken the seats out or something and retest that evidence. Yeah. Maybe they could track that car down somewhere to a junkyard. I don't know. Yeah. It does happen. It's fortunately it's rare. You know, I, I, had a, I had a case where a guy just walked, watched a girl walk by on the, on the sidewalk and decided, I'm going to kill her. And he just followed her to her stairwell and stabbed her to death and walked right past two witnesses who heard the screaming and saw him and then walked away. Ends up, that guy got stopped by the police that night and the, the officers suspected him. So they had the witnesses come by and the witness says, no, that's not him. But it was him. I don't get it. And the people, they, they did a sketch and, and it did, looked nothing like him, although it looked like another psycho guy that we knew of up there that we brought in that. It was a long story with twists. But the thing, the, the thing about this guy, which brings up a whole nother issue is, we had DNA from the knife. He left the knife there, we found DNA off the handle and we submitted it to CODIS, it wasn't in CODIS. Well, this guy had gotten out of prison about four years earlier for shooting somebody and his DNA had been taken, but never processed. It was sitting on a shelf. We thought it was hinky enough, we decided to take him into the office and talk to him. And before we left, he said, you mind if I try, swab your cheek? Yeah, no problem, I gave a swab. And a few days later, we got that's your guy. And it's like, oh my God. He had no connection to his victim, and he just picked it random off the street. He was psychotic. And that happens sometimes, too. The psychosis or the psychotic people that will do that kind of stuff. It's pretty uncommon for that to happen. Thank God.
1: Yeah, it feels like it's uncommon for somebody who is a psychopath to take advantage of an opportunity and
2: then not escalate to to kill more people. Maybe they did. Yeah. But those cases are sitting on a shelf somewhere having not been looked at in 20 years or however long ago it's been. Or, you know, maybe this one got out of control and he killed him for some reason. He wasn't intending to kill him, but it got out of control and he felt he had to kill him. And that happens, too. Let's give you an opportunity to plug your book. You have a book out there. I, I wrote my book working and, I, you know, I told you I I, li- I tried to live as normal a suburban life as I could, yeah. aside from work, and I and neighbors and family would say, what are you doing at work? And I'd, and I'd mention something. To me, I'm just talking about a day at work, but they're looking at me with wide eyes and slack jaws. <laughs> I can't believe that. St- stick to stick to sports. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stick to sports. So, yeah, that's what happened. And they kept, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. My wife would tell me, you got to write a book. And so when I was getting ready to retire, I'd say, well, maybe I'll I just start playing around with it. I'll just, when he, when the homicide happens in Seattle, they send out a one sheet piece of paper, just called Major Incident Summary. goes to all the chiefs and all the detectives and you know, to give you the basic facts about murders. And when I had that seven-year-old girl get killed back in 1994... I thought, that's my first murder. I'm going to keep this one. Well, it ends up I kept every one I ever worked. And now I have a, a notebook that's like that thick. And each individual page is a case I worked. So I just would flip through those. Oh, that was a good case. And I, I have a lot of my old files. And I'd go through it and just write a chapter about that. And next thing I knew, it was done. I had to write it like seven or eight times, but it was done. And I decided to, to go with that. And that's, that's my book. It's out, uh, Homicide, The View from Inside the Yellow Tape, A True Crime Memoir. It's uh, my humble attempt at my first book. Where can we purchase this? You can purchase it at amazon.com, at barnesandnoble.com. I know there are a few bookstores around that carry it. I've been called by a couple of them, but I don't know where. At least one or two Barnes and Nobles carries it, but you can certainly get it online as a Kindle book and as a trade paperback. Awesome. Awesome. Very good. And if you want, no pressure, feel free to bring that notebook to the
1: uh, ASOC conference. (laughs) I will. I'll throw it in a bag. (laughs) I mean, you have to have a separate bag for it, though. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, If it doesn't cost you any extra on the uh, plane. Yeah. Don't let TSA get a look at it either. They might uh, stop you.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This has been great having you on Crawl Space. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. And um, when are you contributing to Nancy Grace again?
2: Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have TV producers. I literally, I get calls every two weeks from a TV producer wanting to do something. So I was on Killer Instinct with Chris Hansen once and, and a couple other ID shows and a Lifetime Movie Network documentary a couple years ago. Well, if you ever want to pitch a uh, TV
1: idea about two podcasters in the true crime there genre and a real life law enforcement official... Uh... You know, you know you where it, you know That's where our Skype you never is.
2: It has to be fictional, though. You know, these two guys are doing it. And they stumble into, and they always seem to stumble into these serial killing cases yeah. and are and enter their lives. <laughs> and we're in over <laughs> our heads. In over our heads. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, this has been good. Thanks so much. Anytime. Thanks, guys.